Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, sponsored by Amazon. Today is Wednesday, January 27th. GameStop stock keeps going up, new COVID-19 infections are down, and we're focused on life imitating art. Robert Downey Jr. is best known for playing Tony Stark in 11 different Marvel films, each time trying to save the planet or universe from something big and bad. Now he's trying to do something similar, but in a decidedly non-fiction way, by launching a pair of venture capital funds devoted to sustainable technology in an effort to combat climate change before it's too late. Today's announcement is the latest evolution of something Downey Jr. first unveiled at the Amazon Remars conference in 2019. It's called Footprint Coalition, initially aimed at investing in and telling stories about innovation that could help save the planet. Things like a startup that makes fertilizer out of insect protein and another that makes paper out of bamboo instead of trees. Today, though, instead of just putting his own money where his mouth is, Downey Jr. is using a platform called AngelList to launch so-called rolling venture capital funds, whereby upwards of 2,000 other accredited investors can participate via footprint, thus better scaling its impact. So we wanted to talk to Downey Jr., plus two of his footprint partners, Jonathan Shuloff and Rachel Kropa, about their news and their vision. That conversation in 15 seconds. I'm pleased to be joined now by Footprint Coalition's Robert Downey Jr., Jonathan Shuloff, and Rachel Kropa. Robert, let me start with you. Based on the announcement that you're making today in the, in the virtual version of Davos, are you right now, do you view yourself as an actor, as an investor, as an activist, some amalgam of the three? Uh, you know, I'll quote the great Michael Corleone. It's just business. However, it is so timely and the threat is so looming that there's this, I'm glad that things timed out the way they did. Cause I mean, you know, it's urgent as all get out. Why do you feel it's so urgent? What's, what's your basic argument in part to potential investors in this fund for why this is needed now? Well, I mean, look, you know, there's always the sequential and the associative views about who's been holding things up and who's right and wrong and why. But our track shoe laces have been tied together in the starting blocks for a while. And uh, now the wind's at our back. But I mean, you know, we got to beat our best time. Uh, I didn't think that I would see the the concentric circles of timings of fires, even just where I live, go out of rhythm with the norm, uh, with the rapidity uh, they did in the last several years. And it's just, you know, signs and wonders, brother. I assume, and tell me I'm wrong about this, the initial investments that Footprint has made were, I assume, with your own money. Why bring other people in through these funds? You've got enough cash. You could probably do this on your own. Yes. Well, look, if you want opening access to me is where you break down that barrier wall of look what I'm doing and I'm doing it all my way and I'm doing it all with my own. I love and what I learned, if nothing else from my years with the MCU, is you stop siloing your efforts and you engage your audience and there becomes this informational synergy that I think supercharges your efforts. Uh, Part of that is the entertainment and the storytelling, but part of it is feeling like I am affecting the outcome of that in which I'm involved. And I feel like we're, we're demonstrating that, you know, if you want to build a real coalition, then I think it is about access and is about saying, 
I don't want you to just watch me benefit from my own works that I'm supercharging to, you know, give myself a nice pat on the back and the ass. I'd like you to see the returns as well. The challenges that we face, the magnitude of these problems require the mobilization of a lot of capital. You don't even tell you how much capital flowed into clean tech last year, which probably at the level of its highest mark, but it hasn't surpassed its highest mark. And why is that? What was the number? I think $28 billion last time I, I read it. Well, part of it was because, I mean, am I wrong saying just from an investment standpoint, part of it is there's a lot of people who still have, you know, investing PTSD from 10 years ago investing in clean tech. Absolutely the case. And, you, you know, you can see the exuberance in the SPAC market for issues that are related to environmental technologies. But we need to mobilize more capital into this area. And so, you know, as much as we can make a great return on Robert's money alone, that's not going to serve the broader issue as much as if we can use that to attract and mobilize more investment into the arena. And I do think we're in a different place today from an investment landscape perspective than we were 10 years ago. So I just fundamentally, you know, we look at the foundational technologies that have come along, whether we're talking about computational biology or artificial intelligence, the tool sets we're using today are vastly different. The urgency is higher than it's ever been. You see a regulatory tailwind that hopefully will, uh, will sustain, notwithstanding I'm sure it's going to go through uh, its cycles. But we're incredibly optimistic and bullish about the prospects for the, for the industries on a look-forward basis. And we need, to, we need to organize an order of magnitude more capital in order to address the challenges that you know, we face as a species. You guys are raising two funds, uh, one for earlier stage companies, one for later stage companies, both via this angel list rolling funds platform. So again, I know these aren't traditional venture capital funds in, in the ways that traditional venture capital funds are raised with targets. Say after 24 months, how much would you have hoped to have brought in? We look at it as, at velocity. And so I'll just some simple arithmetic for you. We set two funds because people should be able to allocate whether they're doing early stage or late stage. The SEC limits each of those funds to 2,000 uh, investors on a one-year integrated fund basis. We set the investment minimums at $5,000 per quarter. So if we can do two funds times 2,000 people, 4,000 people at $5,000 per quarter, it could be raising $20 million per quarter if you filled the minimum. So for 24 months, it's $160 million if we only meet the minimums. Footprint's obviously an investment platform. It's also, you guys have described it kind of as, as a content storytelling platform as well. When you're investing in these companies, obviously you're giving them money. When you're kind of trying to pitch yourselves to them, beyond the cash, what is Footprint planning or how involved do you expect to be with these companies? Intimately, you know, and one of our initial interactions is we try to assess uh, how can we really look at them over a long arc of helping them in their growth. Where Rachel comes in that's so critical is she really is able to vet the scientific uh, fortitude of, of who we're going into business with. And then we're able to do a bit of, of black hatting internally and see, wow, you know, they could really use help with recruiting or they really need to kind of hone in on their, their messaging or this bit is foggy. But again, in the coalition writ large, you know, Rachel was the first person who really came on board and, and I think gave some validity to my own thoughts and doubts about, hey, is this something that we can really do effectively? 
and part of that is, you know, one of my favorite things we've done on the not-for-profit side is is help really underwrite for cellular agriculture kind of what the ethical rules for how to proceed in that are. So we try to reach out on things that may not have even gotten to the point of validation in their emergence, and then companies that may be in earlier or later stages. But storytelling across the board is, I think, how you you break down all that. Just I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Just for me, just for my own education, it's been useful. Rachel, can you talk to me about your role in this and, and kind of as a part of that also, how you've seen the evolution of Footprint it hasn't been around that long, but I guess almost two years at this point and kind of getting to this new announcement. Robert and I, after the Amazon Remars announcement, uh, we got together because we had worked uh, a little bit at his previous agency uh, where I was running the corporate foundation. And I had been a scientist before that, um, but spent the last 17 years really working in entertainment where I was doing a lot of advising for folks on their environmental philanthropy and some of the ESG work for the company. And, you know, I I said, this is something new that we had worked together a little bit before, but uh, it's really my favorite area because I was a scientist. And uh, we just, you know, had a mind meld about how we could put together a a coalition that would do a couple different things. And for my part, I'm doing a lot of the scientific validation of the companies that we look at. So to make sure that the technology is viable, but also that it's a sufficient solution for the environment. And then, you know, I also am running the nonprofit aspect, as you mentioned before, of Footprint Coalition, which when there is a lever to pull and and a scientific frontier to advance to make sure that, for instance, in the case of the Cellular Agriculture Research Hub, that allows a lot of products to come to market in that field. Um, And so it's kind of a continuous spectrum. A lot of the things that we work on, we have something else where we're helping someone prototype a uh, microplastics filter. So you know, there's a variety of different things that we will look at. And a lot of them are in service of what can happen at a later stage when you get to, you know, like an investment fund. I'm doing a lot of the science, the science background with a bunch of scientists that we know and have in our coalition as well. Of all the things you've looked at and, and seen, what's the one thing from a scientific perspective that has excited you the most or made you kind of, you know, look back at the paper or the video or whatever a second time and say, really? They think they can do that? Um, that's a great one. There are so many things that people are working on in so many different fields. I would say I would answer it this way probably is I feel like in material science, there is a lot of potentiality and a lot of really interesting people who are bringing different things. PHA plastic has a really a lot of potential to be substituted for current PET. And, um, and I think that will be a really a step change for people needing things quickly and not having to completely sacrifice their lifestyle, but also doing something that is really major in the sense of the scale of the problem. We look at what, you know, cancer and immunotherapies are doing to stimulate and methods used there to then figure out how to create uh, fundamentally more protein-rich foods or address issues with uh, overuse of, uh, of fertilizers so really amazing technologies there. There's a whole suite of things happening with AI and computer vision that is accelerating the innovation curve in those industries. And Jonathan, let me just ask you about that. You know, one of those problems when you talked earlier about, you know, the, the kind of some of the clean tech busts from a you know, business generation ago, one of the biggest problems wasn't the technologies working per se, it was being able to commercialize them successfully and, and turning them really into actual, you know, profitable businesses. What's the basic argument 
that now is the time that these technologies can be commercialized, can be adopted, and as companies can make money? Well, first is that consumers care. You know, the rise of this conscious consumer class, and, you know, it's part of what we do in the media is really moving people to that adoption. Same thing for governments, you know, driven by citizens to be able to purchase it. But also, you know, fundamentally, you've had the cost curves. You know, you apply the equivalent of Moore's law into other industry segments where you watch the, uh, the declining cost of things. So you take something like, you know, cellular agriculture, which is trying to crack the nut on creating new forms of protein without killing the animal. Well, they're leveraging the media that are used for creating uh, vaccines. And so you're, you're leveraging pharma level innovation and scale as applied to this whole other field in food and ag tech. And, you know, if you follow the, you know, technology's acceleration is not to be underestimated. So 10 years time is a huge leap in terms of the basic tools that we can use today to leverage those things uh, you've seen it in, you know, battery chemistries as applied to electric vehicles. I mean, pick a card, any card. We are so much farther along today than we were 10 years ago. And the need is higher. So it's like we can see an opportunity to scale at a level that you couldn't have done 10 years ago. Robert, you said at the Amazon Remars conference, quote, between robotics and nanotechnology, we could clean up the planet significantly, if not totally, in 10 years. So do you view the real problem here as one of technology as opposed to one of policy? Uh, no, I, I think it really is. It's a combo platter. At that time in that space, that was the specific. That's how I was uh, doing the keynote speech. And also I had heard from some folks who really sounded like they knew what they were talking about, that if we didn't have all these divides and everybody wasn't siloed, we could address these problems yesterday. And I was like, well, why can't we? And they kind of fell silent. So part of my motivation for starting the coalition to begin with was like, shouldn't we be able to do this in an efficient way? Ah, forget it. No, don't forget it. Go and try to be part of creative problem solving. I'm curious, at some point, did playing Tony Stark over and over again kind of begin to influence your thinking or, or kind of how you thought about yourself or how you thought folks reacted to the character, which made you think about what you wanted to do outside of acting? It was uh, the role of a lifetime. And I don't think it was just because in and of itself, it was so fun and wound up having such cred. I remember watching the technology from 2007 to 2019 go from early mocap to Unreal Engines and the screens went from uh, blue to green and back again. And like Johnny was just saying in this space, you know, it's like things catch up with the time at which they can be supercharged by the data needed to drive and make them effective. So I've just kind of been surfing this, you know, we're, we're not remaking the wheel. These are familiar faces in familiar spaces. But I think what I learned from it was in Tony's arc, he got his priorities straight by the end. It didn't turn out so well for him, but it wound up being the right thing for the team. And again, if the highest good is going to be done, we don't have to worry about what our bottom line is. We have to worry about are we going to cross the finish line or not? And that is what I think any worthwhile legacy is about. The team from Footprint Coalition, thank you guys all very much for joining us. 
Welcome back. What we're watching today is President Biden, who's expected to sign new executive orders that'll freeze virtually all new oil and gas leases on public lands and waters. Now, this is in line with what candidate Biden pledged during the campaign. And Axios Energy reporter Ben Gaiman writes that this sets up an early showdown with the oil industry, which will argue Biden is sacrificing jobs and energy security. Today, we are also continuing to watch the Reddit versus Wall Street battle as GameStop shares are up another 70% as of this taping. Two other developments. First, two of the big hedge funds that had short positions in GameStop said today that they've thrown in the towel, although the Reddit traders don't seem to necessarily believe them. Second, lots of folks have been joking about how Blockbuster stock would be booming right now, or Blockbuster still a thing because it's also a 1990s era retailer. Well, there actually is still a public stock for the bankrupt Blockbuster, and its price yesterday jumped by nearly 800%, although that is from less than one cent per share to nearly five cents per share. And finally today, CBS says it has virtually sold out of all its Super Bowl ad inventory ahead of the February 7th matchup between Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs. 30-second spots reportedly have been going for $5.5 million or more, and expect to see lots of names on your TV that haven't appeared before during the big game because traditional Super Bowl advertisers like Coke and Budweiser are sitting this year out. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. It's my producers, Tim Shovers, Naomi Shaven. Have a great National Library Shelfie Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.